Radio. Striving for Holiness, Liturgy and Sacraments. A talk by Professor Drake McAllister at the Immaculata Mission School 2013, held at St. Thomas Beckett Parish in Lewisham, Sydney. Let's pray. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yet it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it, the many become defiled. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to the reality and the truth of your sacraments and how these help call us to holiness, to live the Christian life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, all right, there we go. Okay, so what do we got? Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All right, so let's say it together. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Once again, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All right, what comes to your mind when you hear the word liturgy? So, okay, but, uh, raise a hand. I want to jot some things on the board. When you hear the word liturgy, what comes to mind? The Mass. All right. So we've got, what's that? I can't understand. Sleep? Okay, well, who said sleep? Because yeah, a lot of people sleep. Sleep? All right, there you go. <laughs> Otherwise known as resting in the spirit or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, Brett. Eucharist. The Word. Word of God, okay. Word of God. Way in the back, John. Latin. Really? Okay. Great. Latin. Latin Mass. Light. Light. Uh, go one more. Bread. Bread. Prayer. 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 Okay. Prayer. All right. Prayer. I think we kind of say that the same, but... Um. Okay. So, all right. These are... <clears throat> All things that definitely take place in mass, mass, I mean liturgy, it's mass, uh, sleep, 
Uh, Eucharist, Word of God, Latin, Light, Prayer, whatever. Okay, so now take yourself out of the church for the moment. What do you think comes to the mind of other people? Maybe think of family members, friends that don't go to Mass regularly, and what, what, what comes to their mind when they hear liturgy? Okay, so we're going to call this one inside and two. All right, so community. Long. Yes. Long. It's, it's like, we know it's only 60 minutes, but somehow that 60 minutes feels like an eternity. Uh, uh, okay, sir. Um, L- Lucy. Boring. Do you guys have that game shot here? Survey says boring. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, never mind. Boing. Boring. All right. Yes, Sonny? Old people. Yes, sister? Ritual. Formula. Uh, A lot of standing, sitting, right? Washing the dishes. That's right. That's right. All right, so when I, uh, as I told you before, we... I had my years of study. I decided to become Catholic before we had ever met one real life Catholic and before we had ever attended one real life liturgy and uh, one mass. And so we finally got to go to our first mass in, uh, in the state of Utah. So oh, we were in Washington, which is on the West Coast, and we went about three states over. We were on vacation because when you're, in a, pa- when you're a pastor, you, have to, you, you, you can't just go public until you're really ready to go public because you will precipitously lose your job uh, once people know you want to become Catholic. So, so we, uh, we, we snuck into our first Mass about three states away, and, and which is kind of what it felt like was sneaking into our first Mass. Because when you're not Catholic, and, I mean, and we were really not Catholic. We just didn't hang out with these people at all. And, um, and so I don't know what it's like. I don't, is it, is it, only, does everybody know everybody who goes there? Is there a little secret card to get in? I mean, is do, do, I, I was convinced they would know that I didn't belong. And so, uh, so we, we had prepped the kids with our three oldest daughters at the time and said, okay, we're going to go to church today. We're not going to receive communion. It's going to be a little different, and, uh, but we're just going to go check it out. So we go, and we go to Mass, and we kind of walk in, and it seems kind of normal, and, and there's this whole rack of the little books, the little missalette things, right? So you can follow at the Mass. And so I saw those and thought, I bet, I bet the locals don't take those because they probably know what's going on. And if I take one, they'll know I don't belong. So I'm just going to leave the little book right there because I, be, I wanted to fly under the radar. And uh, so then we went and took our seat and sat down. And, and uh, it was kind of a, a smaller church, uh, maybe... Uh, if, if, if this building was a little longer, that, ah, that, that may have been the whole of the, of the interior building. Um, it wasn't, wasn't real big. And uh, so we sat down, and the liturgy started. And again, my, I just felt like all eyes were on us, like out of downers, not Catholic, um, until the Mass began. So now, I'm in Utah. Do you, if you know anything about Utah, this is the home of Mormons, Latter-day Saints. Uh, Utah is like their Mecca. That's like their, their main temple there. And uh, so there's a lot of Mormons in Utah. And so here's the scene. In the pew in front of me, there was what 
what I, what I took to be the pious grandma, and then her daughter, who was no longer Catholic, and her uh, children that came with her, and, and that the, the pious grandma probably said, all right, if you're staying with me for the weekend, you got to come to Mass. And the way that I knew that the daughter and the kids were no longer Catholic, because as the Mass unfolded, these three little kids in front of us relieved all fear that I had that anybody was going to be looking at us because these three little kids in front of us were sitting on the pew, laying on the pew, laying on the floor, sticking stuff in the air, eating Cheerios, passing food around. And then if you know anything about Mormonism, Joseph Smith is the founder, and they've got Joseph Smith coloring books there in mass. And they're like, got all their Mormon coloring books, and they're filling it all out. And, and these kids are just just whooping it up here in the pew. And so finally, I just, it totally put me at ease thinking, okay, not, there's not one person in this church that's looking at my family. They're all staring at these kids. And, uh, and then once the liturgy was done, I was given one of the greatest gifts that the Lord could have given us on our way into the church. This grandma turned around, the mother of what I'm presuming is the daughter there, she turned around as soon as Mass was done. She introduced herself to my wife and I and said, Hi, I can tell you're new. My name is so-and-so, got our names. So glad you're here today. We're going to have coffee and donuts afterwards. Would you like to come to coffee and donuts? And I just kind of stood there stunned for about 30 seconds. She seems normal. <laughs> What's the trick? I was like... Really? Donuts? You do donuts. I can do donuts. And this, this seems very relational. Huh? But I thought this was Catholic. Okay. Uh, and she totally blew me out of the water. And, she, and, and, and it was a perfect first mass. It was a very kind of low-ish mass because they had one building. That was it. The building was mass. And then when they processed out with the Eucharist, they opened the sliders right there and there was donuts all in the same room. You didn't go anywhere donuts and coffee, because uh, they only had one hall, and so the Eucharist wasn't kept in a tabernacle in there. It was kept somewhere else. And so then brruh, the doors opened up. We had donuts right there, and it was, it again was the perfect first Mass for us, because it wasn't too much incense. It wasn't too much bells and smells and all the stuff. It was, okay, donuts after Mass, friendly lady, Mormon kids all over the place. Uh, I could do this. I could do this. And, uh, and, and we left that first liturgy really being impacted uh, at how, uh, how beautiful it was and interesting. And, uh, and again, I'd listened to it for years. And, uh, but for me, when I would think of the word liturgy, I would think organized or structured. So, uh, yeah, long and boring and service and this ritual formula and if we ever did any kind of organized church service, I would say, oh, it's liturgical, just because we followed an order, which that's not what it means at all. We're going to look at that today. Uh, although you could say that's a secondary meaning. So what I want to talk about is uh, liturgy and, um, and the sacraments specifically, and then uh, calling us to holiness. So the first question we're going to do here is, what is liturgy? And I'm going to we're going to just give an overview of some key catechism quotes as we make our way through. So let's uh, put up number one. This is catechism, again, CCC, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1067. 
What is the liturgy? There's four things I'm going to give you of what the liturgy is. When you hear the word liturgy, I want you to hopefully grow in your understanding of these four things. Number one, in the liturgy, the church celebrates above all the Paschal mystery. So in the liturgy, the church celebrates above all the Paschal mystery by which Christ accomplished the work of our salvation. The work of our salvation. All right. So Paschal mystery. Let's write this down. All right. Paschal. This is the word for Passover. Passover. Anybody speak Spanish? Uh, Italian? No, Spanish? Okay. So what's... what's What's uh, at Easter time? They don't call it Easter. Do you know what do they call? Yes, thank you. Italian will work as well. In fact, most most all other languages will work. So Pasqua. So Paschal simply means Passover. And in all of the languages except English and German, whenever we get to Easter season, it's some version of Paschal. The Paschal season, Pasqua. In Spanish, I think it's Pasch or something like that. But in English, we say Easter, which we really shouldn't. And in German, they say uh, Easter, which they really shouldn't either. It's just, it's a word that means springtime. And it, I would be all for, if anybody wants to write a letter to the Pope, I'll support you and say, can we please tell the English church to stop saying Easter and say Paschal? Because it makes much more sense. Um, so this is Passover. So the Passover is children of Israel, slaves in Egypt, Moses comes, Ten plagues, freeze them the first nine. The last plague is the Passover. Slaughter the lamb, blood on the doorpost, eat the lamb. Those that had the blood on the doorpost, they were freed. Those who did not, firstborn was slain. After that, Pharaoh frees them, and everyone is freed from Egypt through the Passover. So, mystery. So we celebrate, above all, the Paschal mystery. Mystery. Now, usually when we use, a lot of times when people say mystery in the Catholic Church, that's the word they resort to when they have no idea. Tell me about uh, the Trinity. Well, I don't know. That's a mystery. Uh, that means like beyond my pay grade. Um, so that's not what mystery means as, in the, uh, as Christians. Mystery is something very specific. And I'm not going to write this whole thing down, but I'll say it. You can jot it down if you want. I'll give you CCC 237, where you'll find this in the catechism. But mystery is something you could not know unless God revealed. Something you could not know unless God revealed it. So in the liturgy, we are celebrating the Passover mystery. The Passover foreshadowed in Egypt, now made real, realized in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is sacrificed for the sins of the world. The blood on the cross. Afterwards, we receive him, we consume him in the Eucharist. He is the Passover Lamb. And this is the mystery, not something we can't know. It's precisely something we can know. Why? Because God has revealed it. Meaning, it's not by natural law or natural revelation that you would come to this knowledge. You, you can, you know, stare at your navel all day long and reflect on the trees all day long. You will never come to a knowledge unaided 
about Jesus and the cross. That has to be revealed to us. So above all, in the liturgy, the church celebrates the Paschal mystery. The Paschal mystery, which what? Christ accomplished the work of our salvation. Which Christ accomplished the work of our salvation. Uh, all right, well, this, this all makes sense. We'll just keep going here. All right, so number two. 10.68. For it is in the liturgy, especially the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, that the work of our redemption is accomplished. The work of our redemption is accomplished. So, we see that in the liturgy, redemption, salvation is accomplished. Now, there was a time when I read this quote prior to being Catholic, and when I thought liturgy, I thought organized, structure, sleeping, long, stand up, sit down. And I was thinking, these crazy Catholics, they think all of those external actions save them. No, that's not at all what it is. What is it that the liturgy is about? It's about the Passover mystery of Christ, the saving work of Christ on the cross, And that is what accomplishes the work of our redemption. So liturgy, it's Paschal mystery, number one. Number two, our redemption is accomplished in liturgy. All right, so let's go number three. Catechism 11.13. The whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. And here's what I want you to get with this, just real simply. When you hear the word liturgy, yes, it is the Mass, but that's only one of seven sacraments. Every sacrament is liturgy. Every sacrament is liturgy. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, all of those are liturgy. So liturgical life revolves around the sacraments. So it's Paschal mystery. Our redemption is accomplished. And it's the sacraments where we find the liturgy present. The sacraments. All right, let's go one more, and then we'll, uh, we'll summarize all these here. So paragraph 1069 from the Catechism. This is the last point here, fourth point. In the Christian tradition, so talking about the word liturgy, what does liturgy mean? In the Christian tradition, liturgy means participation of the people of God in the work of God. The participation of the people of God in the work of God. All right, so what does that mean? The participation of the people of God in the work of God. So here's, here's we, and we mentioned this the other, the other night, and let's, let's unpack it a little more. So we've got, we've got the cross, and then we've got Drake. I'll be happy because I know I'm going to receive Jesus here in just a moment, but I'm Drake the happy sinner. Um, you have the cross, you have Drake. How does the grace of the cross get to me? So we said the other day, right? We said Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what makes the grace of the cross available to us. 
And it's specifically the Holy Spirit in the sacraments. So it's baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, uh, reconciliation, uh, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and holy matrimony. How does the grace of the cross get to us? It's through the sacraments. First, in baptism. You can search from beginning to end in Scripture. There is not one verse that says, by faith you are placed in Christ. Only baptism. All throughout Scripture does it say, through baptism you are placed in Christ. Now we're told to have faith, have faith in Christ, but that which objectively puts us into Christ is baptism. So, Holy Spirit, the sacraments, this is how the grace of the cross gets to us. It's not just an ethereal, Jesus died, here's me, and one day I just say, okay, I'm in. Um, there, it starts in faith, but there is an objective means through which the grace of the cross comes to us. And, and let's put down here, all of this is grace. This is all grace. And if you want to be more specific, you could even say saving. Saving grace. Again, most specifically in baptism. But all of these have to do with grace, which what does that mean? If it's grace, it's totally from God. You cannot work your way into God's family. That's often a misrepresentation of, of Catholics that we believe we work for our salvation. We don't. You can find nowhere in the teaching of the church that says you can earn this grace in the sacraments. You can't. It's not possible. You can't work your way into God's family any more than you can work your way into my family. You might come over and try and do my chores and say, hey, you told me if I did chores, I was part of the family. No, that's not what I said. I said only those in the family get chores, so get out of my house because you're not my family. No, no freeloaders. Uh, so this is grace. This is the work of God. This is a free gift. Free gift. The catechism is, is just says straight out, no work can you ever do to earn this initial grace of justification. It's not possible. No work can be done. So when we say the participation of the people of God in the work of God this is, this is all liturgy here. This is how Drake participates in the cross. This is how the people of God participate in the work of God. It's through his sacraments. And it's specifically, so it's not talking about work of God like evangelism and what the sisters are doing here. It's specifically talking about how do we participate in the grace of the cross of Christ. It's all grace. It's a free gift. It's from God. All right, so just in summary here. So liturgy is the Paschal mystery. Liturgy is the, in liturgy, the work of our redemption is accomplished. Liturgy revolves around the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Liturgy is how the people of God participate in the work of God. 
So, and part of what I'm wanting you to catch this morning is when you think of liturgy, when you think of sacraments, that you begin to think, or continue to think, as many of you already do, that this is how we commune with Christ most profoundly. Yes, you can do it alone, out sitting on a bench. uh, We do it in our scriptures. We do it many ways. But in the sacraments, it's a very unique encounter with Christ where we participate in the work of God really uniquely. So let me just give you three uh, just quick breakdowns here of the sacraments just so that we've got all the pieces here. That in, in the sacraments, you've got three categories. I'll break them down here. So we have baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. These are sacraments, we say, of initiation. We've got reconciliation and anointing. These are healing. Then we've got holy orders and holy matrimony. This is service. Service. And what we see in the sacraments, that in the sacraments of initiation, these are ordered towards our salvation, getting you to heaven, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. We see the sacraments of healing ordered towards your restoration. After we're in Christ, you're going to fall, you're going to sin, you're going to blow it. God knows that. No big news there. So he's given us a means to be restored to him. I thought it was beautiful today in the homily where Father talked about uh, the beauty and the power of the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Sometimes God just shows up and heals people. Uh, always in the sacrament of reconciliation, we are healed spiritually. So that's ordered to our restoration. And the sacraments of service, holy orders and holy matrimony, that's ordered towards others, service of others, and the salvation of others. Priests make the sacraments available to us, and parents bring life into the world and hand on the faith to those children. Service and salvation of others. This has been the historic Christian teaching from the beginning. From the beginning. And, and I want to just pause as a side note here. This is a bit of an aside, but I want to say it because uh, I hear this everywhere I go. How many of you have uh, either heard, we'll say, how many of you have heard a friend say? That way you don't have to say, yes, I've said it. Um, you don't point at your friend here. No. Uh, how many of you heard people say, or you've been asked, uh, and you hear people say, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, no, I'm Catholic. How many have heard that? Yeah. Uh, because a lot of times, uh, you know, or you'll hear people, you know, what denomination? Oh, bro, hey, I'm just a Christian, man. You know, I don't, I'm not into labels. Um, I'm just a follower of Jesus. And so I hear that. It's, it's very common for people to want to wanna qualify Catholic as something other. Or you'll often hear people say, no, I used to be Christian, but now I'm Catholic. Um, so just in case you maybe have ever said that in your life, uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, perspective here from, from the catechism. So the catechism is, is broken into four parts. You don't need to write this down, but creed, sacraments, morality, and prayer. That's the four parts of the catechism. So I went through one day, because I like to look up these kinds of things, and I uh, I tallied up all the uses of Catholic and Christian to see uh, how the church uses these terms. So we'll we'll do uh, Catholic over here and then Christian over here. So in uh, the pillar on the creed, Catholic gets used 
55 times, on the sacraments, 33 times, morality, 7 times, and the section on prayer, goose egg. There's no Catholics in prayer, apparently. Okay, there goes my head. All right. Um, so there's, uh, there, so for a total of 95 times, the word Catholic, in, in all its various forms, gets used in the catechism. So now the word Christian, in the creed, 136 times, sacraments, 173 times, morality, 130 times, prayer, 69 times, for a total of 508. Christian wins! Yay! Um, so I give you just that little, that little uh, quickie aside there to invite you to use the term Christian as much as possible and only use Catholic when the qualifier is necessary. Because that's typically how the church uses it. When you go to the second pillar of the catechism, the title is Celebration of the Christian Mystery. On the sacraments, celebration of the Christian mystery. It's not the Catholic mystery, it's the Christian. We are Christians. You go to the section on prayer, it's Christian prayer is what it's titled. So the preferred term that the church refers to you and I and everybody else in the world is Christian. Catholic is the qualifier to, bring, to distinguish when it's necessary, when you're dealing with other groups and maybe uh, working with denominations and whatnot. And that's how, it got, that's how the term Catholic became to be used in the early church when all these uh, rogue sects started popping up, we've got the faith, we've got the faith, we've got the faith, because Catholic means universal. And they said, no, 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 no. We're Christians, and we're the Christian faith that is Catholic, universal. And that's when the qualifier began to come in. So I think it's fun to put the non-Catholic Christians on the ropes. And so when somebody says, hey, are you a Christian? And you say, oh, yeah, bro, Totally. And they're, and they're like, oh, great. And then you say, don't you just love the Eucharist? And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? Don't you just love adoration? No, dude, I'm not Catholic. You said you were Christian. What do you mean you don't like the Eucharist? Well, no, I'm not Christian. I'm not, I'm, I'm, why? And it's like, then you, you know, put them on the ropes for once and uh, make them qualify and say, well, no, no, I'm a, I'm a non-Catholic Christian instead of you having to say you're a Catholic Christian. So, um, fun, uh, ways to have fun with your Protestant friends. Um, all right, let's go to the next section, which is what I really want to focus on as we, oh, but not yet, not focusing yet. Um, all right, sacraments, next section. They lead us to holiness. The sacraments lead us to holiness. Uh, the word sanctification often gets thrown around um, sanctification is to set aside. To be holy is to be set aside for God's service. So holiness is setting you aside for God's service. Now, here's the key. The sacraments are for this life. They're for this life. They're to get you to the next life. Now, some of you, have you seen my shirt? My shirt? Can you see, can you tell what my shirt is? Has any, anybody been here? Does anybody know what this is? is Jess, have you been there? Yeah. Is it awesome or what? Okay, don't give it away. Um, you, you're the only one who's... Who, oh, the, the, so this is, this is the Capuchin Crypt in Rome. So the Capuchin Friars in Rome at the Church of the Immaculate Conception, they've got 
uh, below their church this crypt with six different rooms. And, okay, let me just say this. When you, you know you're Catholic when you just do strange things with dead people, right? Uh, you're like, hey, check out my relics. Like, what's that? Oh, that's a bone of somebody. And like, you're just weird. You have dead people. Um, when I was in Rome, we had mass. And we said, we're going to go to a side chapel. And this was back in October. And it was beautiful. We had mass on the tomb of Pope John Paul II. But during the middle of it, I'm thinking, you know you're Catholic when you're having mass on the graves of dead people. That's just, normal people don't do those things. And you just need to remember that when you're talking to your average person that's not Catholic. Um, people get put in the ground and they leave them alone. Um, that's it. They don't, or dig them up and, hey, let's see if he's incorruptible. Let's dig him up. And it's like, they, they just, they don't do those things. So, the Capuchin crypt, though, Long story short, the friars, under a time of persecution, were hiding out and had to hide out in the crypts where the dead bodies were, and they were there for uh, quite a few years, and one of the monks decided to make it a spiritual reflection in the crypts, and a spiritual reflection on death. Because why? For the Christian, we have no fear of death, because Jesus has conquered sin and death. So... What my, my shirt has here is like all these skulls and all these bones. And so this particular monk made all of this artistic representation out of the bones of the friars there. And so I, I brought one picture. So he's got these skeletons dressed up in these Capuchin friar monks things. And they're, they're all propped up praying and doing various things. And you've got all these skulls on the back wall and... It's, uh, at first glance, it's really creepy. And maybe even at second and third glance, it's still kind of creepy. <laughs> but really, Hollywood and all kinds of books and things have done a good job at making death seem spooky, scary, demonic, spirits, ghosts, when it's not any of that. For the Christian, death, Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We read about the martyrs that happily gave their lives. Now, there's a saying in the crypt when you go in there that the, 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 the artist put up. And here's what he says. To all who visit, as you are now, we once were. As we are now, you will be. And if you ever get a chance to go here, this isn't just like a, hey, blow through, look, 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 and you get out the other side. You, you stop and go to each room and you pray through it. And it was inspiring for me. My kid's like, Dad, this is creepy. I said, it really wasn't. Because by the end, you get a tangible sense of the life of Christ that frees us from the fear of death, frees us from the fear of sin. And there's all kinds of little reflections on some of the artistic pieces that go throughout there. But the sacraments are given for us in this life to draw us to holiness. You can't avoid physical death. You can avoid spiritual death. You can avoid spiritual death. The sacraments call us to holiness. This is why Paul tells us when you receive the Eucharist, do not receive the Eucharist in a state of grave sin. If you are seriously sinning, do not transgress on the Eucharist. Why? Because 
We need to be in a state of grace to receive the Eucharist. All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. And let's unpack a little bit more of this holiness. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter six. Second Corinthians chapter six. Now you and I are called to holiness. We are called to be set apart from the sin of the world. As our cross says, you were made for greatness. God does not call you to Jesus Christ just to leave you in your sin and leave you comfortable. We started with the first night about the life of Peter and that presumption stage, while how he was just comfortable with many of the things in his life, not yet being truly transformed by Christ. So take a look at verse 14. I want to pull out a couple of things here. Verse 14 says, Go on, I'll put it up here in case somebody doesn't have a sword with them. All right. It says, do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So this is Paul talking to each one of us saying, do not be united with unbelievers. This can be any kind of things. This could be the type of media you choose to fill your mind with. The kind of music you choose to listen to. It could be the relationships that you are that you have. Could be friendships that you have. And Paul is warning us, you are called to holiness. You are called to be set apart, not to be immersed in the things of the world. What fellowship does light have with darkness? It goes on, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And again, he's saying, we must reach out to those that don't have Christ. And he says this elsewhere. But when we're talking about unity, about relationship, about investing in ourselves, you cannot get closer to Christ with those that are running from him. It can't be done. And in this day and age, we have to be vigilant. It's hard to even just turn on the radio and not be assaulted with things that are violently contrary to the Christian faith. He goes on, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now here it is, and this is what I want you to see for yourself. And he says, for we are the temple of the living God. Why? Because Jesus is on the cross. Here's Drake, the headless sinner. And the life of God has been placed into me through the sacraments. And now the presence of the Trinity dwells in me. For we are the temple, verse 16, of the living God. This takes place through faith and through the sacraments. And he goes on, as God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
So Paul is reminding us, listen, you are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What you do with your body and your time and your eyes and your ears and your hands and your mind, you are doing that with Christ. And he calls us to set aside things contrary to the gospel. And to be clear, by when I say contrary to the gospel, I'm not talking style, things that are fun, things that aren't fun. We're talking just about sin. All right, verse 17. He says, therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you. This is quoting from the Old Testament. 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse, chapter 7, 1, verse 1. Since we have these promises, Paul tells us, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. And make holiness perfect in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. One of the things the sacraments do for us is draw us into deeper union with Christ. They draw us into relationship with him. And part of the key of the sacraments, though, is you have to be formed. You need to understand the sacraments. You need to give them the proper time and attention. If you're blowing into, rushing into Mass, showing up five minutes late, and you're just scattered throughout Mass, chances are you're not going to receive a whole lot. If you run into confession, you're like, oh, I can go catch confession. You don't do a real examination of conscience. You drop in. You drop out. Um, it'll still be forgiveness, absolution, but it may not uh, be as cleansing uh, on our spirit as it could be. See, we need to be well-prepared and formed in the sacraments. But when we do, they draw us to holiness, and they require holiness. So things like the Eucharist. The scripture that I read in the beginning said, strive, and I put that on your note sheet at the very top, the Hebrews 12. Strive for the holiness with that, uh, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So, how do we participate in the life of Christ? Through the sacraments. This is the Holy Spirit working in us, the active agent working in us to uh, bring redemption to us. Now, what this presupposes is that we want to reconcile sin in our life. And this is where I want to wrap up this morning as we close here. Uh, Ephesians 4.27 gives us a great scripture. And one particular translation says, do not give the devil a foothold. Has anybody done any rock climbing here? Are there any rock climbers here? A couple of us? And you, and, and you get these like, Really cool rock climbing shoes. And, and if you've ever done any rock climbing or watched rock climbers, you, they can just have the smallest little ledge and just be like Spider-Man sticking on the wall. And, and it's amazing what they can stick to and climb on. You'll see professional rock climbers. And this one guy, he had a little, he had a, uh, a half-inch 
He had three-quarter, half-inch, I don't know what it was, maybe one inch, three-quarters to half-inch ledge that went around his house. And he would just walk, um, not walk, but hang from his fingers and to exercise and to strengthen his fingers, walk just, just by holding on with his fingers, uh, make his way around the house and to strengthen his fingers. And it was unbelievable. And Ephesians gives us this kind of glimpse saying, don't give the devil a foothold. Do not give Satan any little finger hold, toe hold, anything to have access to your life because that sucker is sticky. He will stay forever if you give him a chance. Don't give him a foothold. We said in the beginning of the week, what does sin do? Sin always takes you where you do not want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. Don't be comfortable with sin. Making use of the sacrament of reconciliation is one of our most important ways of reconciling with God. Do you have to confess every little sin? No. Venial sins can be confessed directly to God. Confession, we must confess serious sin, but it's always good to confess any sin, persistent, be it small or large, bring it up in confession. And at the end of confession, the priest will tell you, make an, now make an act of contrition. Now, I don't know which one you know, maybe this one, or which one you use. And just so you know, there's not the act of contrition for the Catholic Church. This one does happen to come from the Rites book, but it's, you're not required to give a certain act of contrition. You can, and there's, there's many, many, many different acts of contrition um, that uh, are present or that, that are available. But I want you to take a look at this act of contrition. Because when we think about holiness and the sacraments, holiness is going towards God and away from sin. Towards God and away from sin. When you go to confession, you're confessing your sin, and the act of contrition is the time of true repentance and where we are pledging to God that we're going to sin no more. So let's take a look at this. I'll put it up here as well. It says, My God, I am sorry for my sins with all my heart. In choosing to do wrong and failing to do good, I have sinned against you, whom I should love above all things. I firmly intend, with your help, to do penance, to sin no more, and to avoid whatever leads me to sin. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered and died for us. In his name, my God, have mercy. If you don't have an act of contrition memorized, I implore you to memorize one. And if you don't have one, I invite you to memorize this one, because this one is packed, and if you will truly reflect on this act of contrition, it's very formative. The very first line, I'm sorry for my sins with all my heart. It acknowledges that it is for the love of God that we should come to God. The second line, in choosing to do wrong and failing to do good, I have sinned against you. And it just, there's no beating around the bush. Well, I kind of, I sinned. I blew it. I said yes to do this, and I chose it. It's acknowledging the source of the sin. And then, uh, I have sinned against you. Who have I sinned? Maybe I sinned against a person, But ultimately, it is God that I have offended. Who what? I should love above all things. And then it goes on. And here's where it gets 
gets really specific and is helpful for us. Then it says three things. I firmly intend what? With your help to do, so with God's help, to do penance, to sin no more, and to avoid whatever leads me to sin. So to do penance, I'm going to make amends. I'm going to do things to reform my life so that I will not sin. You'll be given a penance by the priest. And then I firmly intend to sin no more. For confession to be legitimate, you have to actually be desiring not to do it again. That doesn't mean you're not going to fall or fall short. But you can't go into confession and say, I'm confessing this and have zero intention to stop. No, I know as soon as I leave, I'm going to go do this again. And that you're intending to. You can't do that. But here's the third one that most people miss and what I love about this act of contrition. And to avoid whatever leads me to sin. We talked about proactive love last night. This is a very proactive. It's, it's um, you know, when temptation comes, it's good to say, okay, here's temptation. I'm going to run from this temptation. That's a good thing. But to avoid whatever leads me to sin is one step even before that. It's that I know there might be temptation here, so I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to go this way and stay away from it. When you begin to think and process your Christian life in that way, not just reacting towards near occasions of sin, but actually choosing, I'm going to not listen to that. I'm going to not go here. I'm going to not be with this person. I'm going to not do this. That really begins to alter your life. And it goes on. Our Savior Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. In his name, my God, have mercy. And it just roots the, um, the origin of our sanctification and holiness in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Savior. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Say it with me again. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Once again, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That was Professor Drake McAllister with Striving for Holiness, Liturgy and Sacraments. For more talks from the Immaculate Mission School 2013, visit cradio.org.au.